Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a Christian home. My parents didn't. They met Jesus through Power to Change in university. Uh, but I, had the, I experienced the grace of growing up uh, in, a, in a Christian home with, with parents who loved Jesus, loved me, and, and taught me about Jesus. So at a very young age, age of four, uh, my dad was going through a Bible story with me and we got to the part where Jesus was hanging on the cross. It was a very violent, disturbing image for a four-year-old to see. And I'm like, what is going on with this book you're showing me, Dad? He explained the good news of the gospel to me and I accepted Jesus. I asked Jesus into my heart as a child does uh, at the age of four. At the age of six, I, I sensed God calling me into ministry, into some sort of vocational ministry uh, uh, in the church or in missions. Um, as, my, as my parents were doing, as they had stayed with Power to Change, or Crusade as it was called at that point. Uh, at age 11, uh, my dad and I sort of acted on that together. There I am with my dad. So I'm 11. Uh, and uh, no beard at that stage. But only one year away from starting one, if you can believe it. I, I started early. Um, and, uh, and we went to Leningrad, which is now called St. Petersburg, but back then it was still communist. This is how old I am. And, uh, it was, uh, not totally legal for us to do this. So, uh, but we went in and we went to share the gospel with people. And this was like our support raising picture, um, that my mom took in front of a map indicating we were taking the gospel somewhere, but we couldn't tell anyone where we were going. It was so weird. We're like, pay for us to fly somewhere and tell people about Jesus, but we can't tell you where because we might go to jail. I don't know if I understood that, but parenting decisions, you know. Uh, but shortly after this, as I grew a little bit older and I became that semi-bearded teenager, uh, I struggled a lot. Um, and I was unfaithful, unfaithful to Jesus. Um, I, was, I was going to church, but I was also kind of doing my own thing. And so at 16, I had to re-decide to follow Jesus. I had to, as, as a young adult, re-embrace uh, uh, that decision. Um, about 10 years ago, um, sorry, eight years ago in 2010, shortly after moving to Quebec to be involved church planting, um, the Lord did more work in my heart. And it was very much around the idea of control, that Jesus was going to be in control, that my plans were not that great. His plans were amazing, and he wrestled control from me. Um, I would say today, as I stand here before you, I'm, the Lord is forcing me to learn that decision again, um, yet again to, to give up control to him, that he is so much better um, at piloting my life uh, than I am. And the temptation is to reach over and start to try to like shift the gears, pull on the wheel. He's like, don't touch that, but he lets you. Um, but to not do that. My point in telling you this is that the Christian life, following Jesus, is not always easy and not always black and white. Following Jesus is sometimes a, a windy path, not because of Jesus, but because of us, because of our tendency to, to struggle and to stray. And so sometimes as we walk with Jesus and, and, and we do this thing called Christianity, we can struggle with, with serious questions about our faith. We begin to ask questions like, how do we know when someone is saved? If you are unfaithful for a season, does Jesus get really angry with you? Can you lose your salvation? 
What about somebody who professes faith in Jesus and then very publicly rejects Jesus and walks away? What do we do with that? The passage that we have this morning is going to get us into uh, all of these questions. And, uh, and we're going to just jump right into the first verse here. Verse 11. So the author of Hebrews says, <clears throat> About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. Now, immediately when we see this, we have to stop and say, well, okay, what is he referring to? Whenever the Bible, you start a verse and it's like, therefore, don't, don't just keep reading. Stop and go back and see what the context is, what they're referring to. So as I said before, we're, we're, we're taking this out of its context. We just want to dip back for a moment, grab a few verses and sort of put like one arm of the sleeve of the contextual sweater uh, back on for a moment. So just a couple verses, um, roll back to verse 2 says he, in referring to Jesus, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Wayward means like what I was doing between 13 and 16. I was wayward. With the ignorant and wayward, since he, Jesus himself, is beset with weakness. And then verses 7 and 8, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus was uh, a human being walking on the earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he, was, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So contextually here, we see that, that Jesus, uh, though he was the son of God, was also very human. And therefore, Jesus is able to relate to you. He's, he's able to relate to us in our human struggles. Um, he does not stand uh, aloof and apart from us in judgment and saying, why aren't you doing better. He understands. He can empathize with us in our struggles. Uh, and, a, and that allows him to not be harsh with us. And that's very important for us because the passage that we're, as we get further into our passage, it, it's going to start to feel harsh. And for those of us who are walking with Jesus, we, we can cling to the empathy of Jesus that he's giving as context here before he starts to get a little bit tough on us. And then in the following verse, he goes on to talk about how Jesus, um, through his obedience, secures salvation for all. Um, and that this is what the author is referring back to when he says, I have so much to tell you about all of these amazing things, but I can't. It's, it's, it's hard. Why is it hard? Verse 12. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. All right, who, who has a milk-only diet in our society? Babies. Yes, infants particularly. I can hear some in the room. Babies. Babies are the ones who, who only drink milk. Does anyone know at what age they begin to take on solid food? Six months. Yes. Yeah, so four to six months. It's been a while f- since I've had the spoon. I, I like the term solid food. This is a real stretch. If you've ever seen baby food, it's like more solid than a liquid, but come on, you know, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a marketing thing. But you're doing like the, I, I did the, the cliched airplane thing because it works and because it's fun. 
and, and it goes in their mouth instead of all over their head and on the floor. I mean, that happens also when the plane crashes, but it's, it's, it's a good time. But I've suppressed all of it, and I don't remember what age it is, but I looked it up on the internet. Um, part of the reason I'm even preaching this morning is I was scheduled in to coincide with Jordan uh, and Sandra having their baby, which I believe I saw them come in with the baby. Like, hold it up like Lion King style. Someone can sing the circle of life. Very exciting. Praise God for new life. They have a front row seat to all of this good stuff uh, for the next while. Yes. Uh, babies. So what is the author doing here? He's making a comparison. He's like babies, not just little baby, like infants versus teachers. And he's like, you should be more on this end, not in kindergarten or grade school or high school or university, but like graduated teaching, but instead you're baby. Some of you, he's not saying it to all of his audience, but he's like, some of you, this is a problem. Uh, And it's not that they haven't been instructed in these things already, that their education has been lacking. Uh, Completely to the the contrary, they've been educated and re-educated in these basic things over and over again. And the problem is, is they're not learning them. They're not embracing them and they're tearing them up. uh, This sort of a foundational thing and they're going back to learn them again. Um, And he helpfully kind of gets into what these basics are. So, in the next couple of verses, as we move into chapter six, we're going to see like a, a Christianity 101 and then a Christianity like 201. If you guys have classes in university, they like to assign numbers to everything so that you know where you are. So Hebrews chapter six, verse one, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So in verse 1, we have the basics. And there's really just two things that he highlights here. Uh, First, repentance. Repentance means to turn away from. um, That we acknowledge our sin, we own our sin, we acknowledge our need for Jesus, and then we turn uh, in, in the grave, as you will, unable to bring ourselves to life, but we can kind of turn in the grave and look to Jesus. And then secondly, we, we in faith, uh, believe that he is able to rescue us and bring us life, though we are dead in our sin. This is very, very, very basic stuff to repent, to turn, and to, and to look to Jesus in faith for him to do all of the work that his righteousness can rise, raise us uh, from the grave. And then uh, in verse 2, it's the like 201 course, and it hits a few other basic things. Washings, which may refer to baptism. That's something that we have coming up soon for our church. So we'll be baptizing people. That's a natural thing if repent, faith. And then baptism, which is this public declaration of faith in Jesus, that you're trusting him and you're scorning your sin, you're looking to Jesus. Um, it could also refer to the ceremonial washings that Jewish people were doing. They're washing everything, washing their hands. And that's not a bad thing, but you don't have to wash your hands anymore for Jesus to love you. And all the kids are like, I knew it. Parents are telling me wash my hands. But it's a good idea, spread of disease. Um, Particularly if you are laying on of hands on people, which is the next point. No one wants that if your hands are dirty. Um, This probably refers to the pointing of leaders. So you you, you have people meet Jesus, they baptize, they gather into the church, and then you appoint elder leaders to function as pastors. Other leaders are appointed for administration. Keep your hands to yourself up there, Gockleys. I see this. You guys haven't washed your hands. So we're laying on the hands. You're pointing leaders. You don't want to mess that up because then everything will be terrible. 
um, that's an important thing. The resurrection of the dead. Uh, major debate back then if this was all that there is or if there was more after. And that's a debate that we have today as well. Is this all there is or is there more? Is there n- new life after death? And the Bible says yes. Oh yes, there is more. Much more, in fact, than what we experience here. And as we internalize that as a worldview, that radically alters the way we, we treat this little sliver of time and space that we call life in the light of eternity. It affects us. It's a part of our, our, our worldview. Uh, and additionally, because of this last thing that he mentions, eternal judgment, that there is a judgment that is coming and that for those who are enemies of God, they will be separated from God forever, which is an awful, terrible thing to contemplate, but it is very real. And so that also impacts the way that we move forward from turning to Jesus to into the Christian life, that we don't move on from these basic things. They are the foundation that Hebrews talks about. They're what everything else is built on. We, we, we hear of eternal judgment and we go back to repentance and faith in Jesus as the way to escape that. And then we go out into the world and we declare there is an escape. Jesus has made a way for you to, to avoid judgment if he takes the judgment for you. So then we're sent on mission to be able to explain and, and, and declare this good news to the world. So all of this basic, basic stuff, this is the foundation. This is the milk of Christianity. It's what every Christian should learn in the first four to six months and, and internalize and be able to operate on. But the issue that the author is facing uh, right now seems to be that, that people were embracing that and then, and then ripping it up and then re-embracing it and ripping it up and going back and forth on this and not progressing. And so then things start to get a little bit scary. Verse 3, he says, this we will do if God permits. If God permits implying that maybe God won't allow people to just continue that process forever of, of following Jesus, rejecting Jesus, tearing up the foundation, going back again. Keeping going in verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him, Jesus, up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop is useful for those whose whose sake it is cultivated. It receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the end it is to be burned. These are some of the scariest verses in the whole Bible. I was actually like not very excited to preach about this when I saw what I was preaching. I'm like, ah, this is like my least favorite passage. Uh, But then, of course, the Lord allows me to spend time with it and confront it head on. These are scary verses. This is why we go and we get the contextual sweater to remember that, that, that Jesus can empathize with us in the struggle. But this, this begins to raise questions of like, does God close the door to salvation for some people? If they're re-crucifying Christ, of, de- of declaring their allegiance to him and then rejecting him and then coming back again, does the Lord eventually close the door to that? That's a very serious thing. It's a very dangerous place to be. Um, this gets us up to this term that um, is used when we're talking about this passage and, and this, this thing of where people would, would come into the church, leave the church, and then come back into 
the church. And the term is apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy, just as a general worldly definition, is the abandonment or renunciation of a religious or political belief. In the biblical usage, or our usage here this morning, it, it refers to a rejection of faith in Jesus, a public, conscious denial of Jesus and those basics that we talked about. Now, are you free to do that? Absolutely. Anyone who who begins to engage intellectually with the teachings of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, they can understand it and then reject it. Everyone is free to do that. Are there consequences to doing that? Certainly. There are very serious consequences. Um, and, And so much so that the author here seems to indicate that that's a very dangerous place to be. That it's actually more dangerous to be in the church, but not of the church. To be sitting here, and to be hearing these, the rain that that passage talked about falling on the soil and nothing is happening. Nothing is growing. There's no life. Why? Because there's no repentance and faith that that has been torn up if it was ever acted on at all. Uh, so there's, there's a danger here. And this, this whole thing, this is where it gets hard because it begins to enter into, it begins to enter into this tangled web of questions around how people are saved, who is saved, why they're saved, can they lose their salvation? All of these issues of salvation are, are bundled up nicely um, in, a, in a doctrinal term called soteriology. It's the study of how people are saved, the, the a grouping of doctrines around this. And if you've ever been to like something like Comic-Con, I'm not going to make you raise your hand and experience the shame of admitting that. But if you've ever seen it on TV... Um, one of the things you'll notice is that people get like nerd rage about like comic book stuff. Um, you'll see people who are like Star Wars and then there's like the Star Trek people and they're like, and they like fight each other with pretend weapons that aren't real um, because none of it's real. Um, this is this thing that happens in the world that some people just really like to just debate about stuff. Um, Christian nerds do this too. And this is one of their favorite subjects. And so there is a huge body of work that you can dive into in soteriology and all of these interesting questions. Uh, The result of this is that there are a lot of different views. So I'm going to give a very quick sort of overview of this potential range of views, talk about where we land and its implications for our passage today. And I should say that these are all, well, I'll I'll put them up here. Boom, five views. And some people may divide this up a little bit differently, but for the sake of clarity and time, this is how I'm doing it. Uh, so five views. Hard Calvinist, Calvinist. You may also use here the word reformed instead of Calvinist. Uh, Arminian, Wesleyan, and Universalist. And all of, these, all of these would be within the Protestant realm of the world. We're not, we're, we're sort of, this is something that happens within the Protestant world, not the, the, the world of Catholicism or, or Greek or Russian Orthodoxy or Syrian Coptic Church, this is something that is, was born out of the Protestant Reformation. So you got Martin Luther. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, um, a monk in the Catholic Church. He rediscovers the, the glory of the gospel of, of, of salvation through faith alone, by grace alone. And he, he, he tries to reform the church. He tries to get them to pivot away from selling salvation as indulgences and so they could build big buildings and, and instead redirect people towards faith in the finished work of Jesus. And rather than reforming the church, he instead ends up starting a movement, the Protestant Reformation. And one of the guys who followed close on his heels was John Calvin. And Calvin's teachings were eventually 
uh, I'm rushing through a lot of history here, but his followers took his teachings and made Calvinism. Now, John Calvin probably wouldn't have been a Calvinist in the way that it's formulated now because it is a very um, tightly packed, very logical system that plays well, uh, a little too well maybe with itself and and doesn't maybe mesh with like 100% with the Bible and reality, Uh, but it is a very uh, tight system. And so we're going we're gonna, to, as a, as a church, we would be most closely aligned as a Reformed church with sort of a general view of, of Calvinism. That's where, where we are as a church. Anybody is welcome to worship with us, regardless of where you fall in this. Uh, but as you get closer to us, and particularly if you move into uh, leadership or certainly pastoral leadership, that's where our, our leaders um, generally are going to find themselves. But there's a lot of nuance even within that. So we'll start there and then, and then back out to this. The way that we keep track of uh, the points within Calvinism is with an acronym, uh, TULIP, which is a flower. And it's helpful to remember these five points. Uh, total depravity. This is the idea that we are completely unable to, to lift ourselves out of, the sin, out of our sin, out of the grave, and into new life. We're totally unable to do that, total inability. Um, unconditional election is the idea that, that God saves you. If he chooses you and he saves you, you are his, and there is no escaping him. Limited atonement is the idea that, that Jesus' um, atoning work, which is the atoning means to like pay for, to pay for your sins, that his work is, is really just for those people who ended up actually being saved. And this would be an area where perhaps most of our leaders would put a little asterisk and be like, well, Jesus, the Bible tells Jesus died for everybody, for the whole world. Technically, perhaps, it was only applied to those who received the gift, okay? But we would say maybe unlimited, limited atonement is the way we do that one. Irresistible grace, when the Lord pursues you and is gracing you, um, you cannot escape him. And perseverance of the saints, once he has you, he is not going to let you go. That's my favorite, uh, because now you're stuck with God and there's nothing you can do to, to screw that up. And that is a beautiful, wonderful thing for us to cling to. Um, we believe you cannot lose your salvation if you are truly saved. Now, all of these other views kind of would, we were going to spring off of these, these points in, in Calvinism. And so one direction we could go is to something called hard Calvinism. Because if you're a logical person, some of you guys are extremely logical. I'm about to frustrate you. I apologize in advance. But there's, there's, there's a logical progression to the idea of, of God electing or choosing some people to go to heaven. Because then sometimes, then he's not choosing other people, which would imply he's like, choosing them for hell, right? And that doesn't feel good or sound right, but that feels logical to us. And some people adopt this, and this would be called um, hard Calvinism. Oh, not yet. We'll get to that. Hard Calvinism adds like two more points to this. I forget what one of them is, but one of them is double predestination, that God is choosing by default both. But this is taking something that is nuanced in the Bible, that the Bible doesn't, doesn't, indicate that the Lord is choosing some people for destruction. And so there's a nuance around this issue that is mirrored in a whole bunch of doctrines that we find in the Bible. Um, The most famous of which would be God himself and his nature being three persons and one substance at the same time. Logically, we don't like that. We're like, well, is he three or is he one? And we say, yes. 
and everyone's like, whoa, no. Logical people hate that. God loves this. He thinks it's hilarious to make smart people look dumb and for children to be like, well, I get it. You know, like I have no problem with this. The Lord is smarter than, than us. Um, and, and he is different and other from us. And I think the main problem with this is we are worshiping and seeking the face of a being who lives outside of space and time. So there are problems with that. Has anybody seen the movie Interstellar? Beautiful movie. Go home and watch it. Homework assignment. It's long. Go to the bathroom first. It's, it's a great, beautiful movie. It's very clean. Um, and you can watch it with your older children. And there's stuff that happens there with space-time, you know, wormholes, black holes, uh, tesseracts, all of this really interesting stuff. And it begins to expand your mind. If you've never thought about these things, by the end of that movie, you'll be like, the world is not as I perceived it. Like, you will be, your brain will be blown. That is what you need to begin to approach the way that the Lord is living outside of the world. And as he begins to interject and communicate truth to us, by the time it is received to us in the word of God, it doesn't read linearly the way that we want it to. There are things in there that, that seem to be contradictory, such as the idea that he could choose some or that God chooses us, but then we're also culpable for our choices and that we feel in our own existence that we're choosing him, which is the other view below Calvinism on that little list is uh, Arminianism. They're more emphasized on the human choice of God versus God choosing us, that there's these positions that come from taking these beautiful three-dimensional truths of God and squishing them flat so we're more comfortable with them. So this is a, this is a tool now we can go to the train tracks. This is a tool that I use in my own mind to be able to make sense of this, and I hope this is useful for you as you engage with these things. Now, in this picture, in its form as a flat thing, the train tracks go to pretty much a vanishing point, right? Are they touching each other? In the picture, they technically are. Like, they're mostly, they go down and they're, they're coming to a point. And on the image, if you took a pencil and you drew, like they're actually touching each other in the picture as we are flattening this thing out and we're making it something that we can reproduce. But we know intellectually there is a real set of train tracks out there that some guy took a picture of and put on the internet and that I took. And that it is, they never touch in reality. So in the same way, this is kind of our trouble as we are looking at things from a timeless being, as he's communicating things to us, that there are things that seem to be in contradiction, but in reality are perfectly fine coexisting. That's something that, that, that is important for us to understand because otherwise the temptation is to flatten those the way that the book and the movie The Shack kind of try to flatten the Trinity. And everyone's like, oh, it makes so much more sense. That tension is gone. That's not a good thing. C.S. Lewis says, any truth taken too far becomes a heresy. Things need to be held in balance and in tension. So we, we live in that tension in terms of salvation, of the Lord choosing us and us uh, choosing him. Um, going back to our list here, um, a lot of people then will make accusation to say Arminians say that you can lose your salvation. That's not true. They, they don't believe that position, but the Wesleyans do. The Wesleyan position is similar to Arminian, but then it adds this extra little thing of like, well, if you, if you sin egregiously and you don't repent and then you get hit by a bus, you go to hell. Dave Long was telling me that the, you know, Calvinists have the tulips, but uh, Wesleyans have the daisies. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. We laugh, but it's an awful way to live. 
Can you imagine? You're, you're, this is what Martin Luther struggled with. He was wearing out his confessor. You know, his confessor would be in the box. Martin Luther would come in. He's like, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And then 12 hours of confession of every little minutia thing until like the, the confessor is like, just don't worry about it. You know, like you're over confessing. So when Martin Luther was freed of that, I don't understand how anybody within Protestantism could ever go back to that, but it has happened. And that's a, that's a dangerous and false teaching that we want to avoid. And then the last one that I kind of tacked on the bottom is important for us because it's something that is in ascendancy now and it's universalism. Uh, Universalists cling to, to the Bible very lightly. They sort of claim the Bible, but don't believe its teachings, which is frustrating to me. Uh, but they would say, well, you don't need to be saved. Like everyone's going to be saved. Uh, universally, everyone will go to heaven. Hell is not even like a real thing, which of course removes the need for uh, true repentance and faith in Jesus. Jesus was just a really great example. We should be inspired by him. No, 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 no. So this is the whole range of this thing as they begin to deal with these questions. So long answer uh, to a big question from our perspective as a church, and we feel the scripture says this, no, you cannot lose your salvation. If you have truly uh, given your heart to Jesus, even if you struggle later, you're not going to go to hell because you got hit by a bus and show up and God's like, what are you doing here? And you're like, I'm a Christian. He's like, well, yeah, but right before there was that one thing, right? That's not going to happen. Uh, that the Lord, um, that we, we persevere as saints. Um, so if we can't lose our salvation, what is he talking about? Why is this passage so, so scary to us? What is, what is the author of Hebrews really doing here? So when we're reading the Bible, you're reading a passage, it's not only important to look at the textual uh, context of the passage, what's happening around the passage. You also want to know what's going on in the reader's lives. The, whom the book was intended for, the letter was written to. What's going on in their lives? What is the author addressing? And in this case, the author is addressing a very real and, 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 and troubling uh, thing that was happening in the early church, and that was persecution. Persecution was happening because the church and the state were separate, uh, and so there were 10 major persecutions up until when Constantine joined church and state, which, of course, created a whole host of other problems, crusades, inquisitions, religious wars, until in modern times, somebody realized, hey, maybe we should separate church and state again. Can you imagine if the IRS was in charge of your religious life in addition to your taxes? You're like, fill out this form. Did you sin today? And you're like, yes. And like, well, there's a fee for that. You know, like, you know, oh, you, you've not done this? Death penalty, right? This is what was happening for so long. It's way better that they're separated. But, it, it, but now, but now, again, we have church persecution like we've never seen today. More people are being killed for Jesus today than ever in church history, partly because there's just a lot more Christians to kill. Uh, but we've, we've returned to the same position of the people who were originally receiving this message as the Hebrews, that they're facing church persecution, that the dominant culture isn't Christian. You've noticed this as you've gone around the city. What we believe is not in vogue. And less and less every day that goes by. And with the internet, things are going so quickly. We have violently unpopular views here in this room. There will be persecution. Jesus promised that. And we, we get to enjoy Enjoy the persecution. So what's happening here then is that we have people who are joining the church in, in, in the Hebrews time here. They're joining the church 
and then they be, and they declare their allegiance to Jesus, and then the persecution comes, and the Romans come with like the lions and tigers, and they're like, whoa, 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 just joking. I'm not, I, I reject Jesus, right? So then they leave. They don't get eaten by tigers. And then later, after the tigers are put away, they come back, and they're like, uh, can I still come in? Can you imagine how it feels for the people who's like, yeah, my mom was eaten by a lion last week, and now you want to come back? There's, there's a problem there, especially if they do it more than once. There's, there's people who are being, they're being drawn away uh, and, from the church. And to complicate things further, and this is different than what we have today. Today, we're being drawn away from faith in Jesus towards secularism or humanism or perhaps new age. In this time, they had moved away from the dominant religions into what was kind of seen as like a secular thing because they didn't trust in anything but Jesus anymore. And so for the Jewish Hebrew people who were Christians, there was a constant temptation when things got difficult to just go back to the old system of, you know, the food laws and the temple sacrifice and all of this, that they could just go back and get salvation the way it was then because that's just more socially acceptable. No one's throwing rocks at them. Or as a, as a Greek person to go back to worship the old and pagan gods. And so what he is doing in this passage is he is addressing those people who are rejecting Jesus and denying Jesus and going back to these other things. And he's saying there is no, there is no salvation for you if that's what you're doing. You can't go back to the old covenant. You can't go back to your temple worship. It, there's no life there anymore. You need to know that. Life is only found in Jesus. So he's giving that very intense warning. And he's saying that if you are here and you're not really with us, it would be better if you weren't even coming because you are now receiving grace and you're ignoring it. And every time you come and you go and you visit other churches, you kind of do the church thing, but you never buy in. You never really repent and embrace Jesus in faith. You are sort of like holding Jesus up to ridicule. And there may come a time when the Lord says enough, enough. It's a very serious thing. These are scary words, and the author knows this. And so he's now going to like, as we kind of get into the last bit here, he's going he's to roll back a little bit from the intensity. Uh, verse 9, because he, he's not accusing everybody of being um, un, unfaithful or uh, apostate. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and have the same full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So God is not so unjust to actually push people out of salvation. He's not going to like pull the rug out from under you and be like, tricked you. Um, you there's security in that, the hope uh, that we have. Um, so practically speaking for believers who are walking with Jesus, and this is perhaps the most important thing I'll say all morning, so focus. Denying Jesus publicly, vocally, intellectually, denying Jesus is not the same as struggling in your faithfulness to Jesus. It's not the same denying Jesus, or simply just struggling in your walk with Jesus. Whether if even it is a period of unrepentant, willful sin in your life that you are 
feeling trapped by. That is not the same as standing up and being like, this is all bogus. I'm out of here. I'm done with Jesus. It's not the same. Uh, Paul writes about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, it says, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And this is what Hebrews is talking about. You deny Jesus, he, he will deny knowing you when you attempt to enter his kingdom. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So even if you are uh, not faithful to Jesus, he can't, be, he can't be unfaithful to you back because now you're family. Uh, my theology professor in seminary used to tell a story about this, uh, Dr. Gary Brashears. He, um, he worked with victims of the occult. So not Satanism like the occult, like the scariest, worst things that you could read about on the internet and people who escaped from this and who had been abused by this. And, uh, and so he worked with them. And in one case, he's older, older couple, um, their children are grown. They actually adopted a woman who had escaped from the cult because they needed to keep her at home because she was programmed at certain times to like go out and disappear and like they would use her for things. Very, very broken situation. And so they adopted her into their home. They changed her last name to Brashears. And uh, one day she messed up something, did something foolish. It caused problems or whatever, like there was conflict. So she goes up to her room and she starts packing. And they go up and they're like, what are you doing? And she's like, I blew it. So it's done, right? I'm out of here. And they're like, well, no. Yes, you messed up. But no, you're a part of our family. You're, you're a Brashears. You can't un yourself. Like it doesn't, it's not possible. Um, and, you know, hug it out. Like this is like, we'll work through this. This is your family now. Uh, we tell our kids this all the time. Even if you like really go off the rails in your life and you're selling the cocaines to people or whatever, like we, you will always be a Stegner. You will always be our child. We always love and accept you even if we don't approve of what you're doing and we desire repentance. Like you can't unstegner. Uh, when, when you become a part of God's family, you're stuck. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Jesus will not, he can't be unfaithful to you. You're like, the church is married to Jesus. We're like betrothed to him. He is not going to go have like this weird bachelor party. Like he's faithful uh, to us individually and as the church. Uh, so there's great, there's great hope for us in this. Even in the midst of, the, I know every single one of you in here, in, in your walk with Jesus, if you have a walk with Jesus, have struggled. And probably most of you at some point have said, man, I bet Jesus has given up on me. He has got to be angry and or moved on. And Satan, Satan runs up, yes. That's exactly what's happened. You're like, I knew it. Not the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to that. That's, that's, this is a thing. This is a heavy thing. So we need to take great joy. This is a weird passage because for some people, this is like fear in the pit of your stomach and that's a good thing. For other people, it's like great joy that we have the security of Jesus. Um, Jesus himself makes this promise to us in John, Gospel of John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's election. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are of one. This is where we get that perseverance of the saints. No one can remove you from Jesus' hands or, or, or God's hands. Um, 
Paul talks about this in Philippians. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You may say, man, I am so messed up. That's okay. It's not your job to fix yourself. That would be a religious thing. We don't do that here. Jesus sends his spirit to change you, to make you more like himself. It's the work of the spirit. You just sort of give into that, that you get out of the driver's seat and you let Jesus drive by his spirit and he makes you more and more like him. And it's a process. None of you are looking a whole lot like Jesus on a daily basis, but you're getting there. It would be much worse without the Holy Spirit in your life. And that process is promised to be completed, that he is able to finish that process despite us, uh, despite everything that we have uh, in us that is still broken. And then as we go back to our main passage, um, the Hebrews passage, he also encourages us um, in this and talks about the promise of the Savior in Abraham and the promise of God will not change. Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God not only makes the promise, but then he swears, double dog swears, that it'll, that it'll happen by his own self because there's nothing greater that he can swear over. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And it is before us. Sometimes we feel hope less because the hope is before us and we begin to reach for it, but we have to, in faith, reach knowing that someday we will have it in its fullness. Right now we have it in part. And so it's before us and we, we have faith that God is unchanging in his nature as he lives outside of space and time. He is fixed in his promise towards us, his intention towards us, his love towards us, and he cannot lie. People are like, God can do anything. He can't lie. He's limited in that way, and that is a good thing, and we, we trust in that. And moreover, not only is it just God from the outside making this promise to us, but we have a brother who has gone and, and, and secured it for us. Jesus. Verse uh, 19 and 20. Last Last chunk. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul and a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's the Holy of Holies in the temple where God dwelt with the people. Where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is, the, is an anchor for our soul. And Jesus has gone before us to God, to the Father, to make a way for us in. So we have the promise of God for there to be a way. Now Jesus, we have seen, has gone and made this way possible and that he will return and bring us to be with the Father forever. And this is possible because Jesus has been declared high priest to represent the people to God. And he, him, he offers himself as a sacrifice for sin, once for all, the perfect sacrifice. And this is where the passage keeps going. If we kind of put the other arm a sleeve into the contextual sweater. It goes further into the high priestness of Jesus and what has been secured for us. And that's what Jordan finished up with last week. You, you can maybe podcast it unless the podcast got destroyed by the screen blinking. Maybe it's gone forever. You can just read it when you go. 
But what he said stands true. It is Jesus who's in control of this whole thing. Not you, not me. It's Jesus. So if we can be so sure of our salvation, what is the point of this passage then for us here and now in this room if we don't have to stress that? Well, the reality is, is not everybody in this room is saved. I'm making an assumption here, but there are probably some people in this room that are in this room and right now, and you may or may not know who you are, but you're not in the kingdom of God because there has not been a repentance and faith in Jesus. To you, this passage should freak you out. You should be uh, fearful. This is a wake-up call to you to stop playing church and get in the game and repent and make Jesus your savior, king, and treasure. This is huge. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is, should cause some fear in you. And that's a good thing because Paul says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not that we're overwhelmed with fear or frozen by fear, but that this is a grave thing, a serious thing, and that there is no other path to salvation through, through uh, self-righteousness or simply just denial of reality. Um, you can't just will God not to exist. Uh, this is a wake-up call, maybe for some of you. I would assume for the, for the majority of you that you take great comfort in this. You take great comfort in the security of your salvation that's been purchased for you and you've had like nothing to do other than just sort of roll over in the grave and, and, and have faith that it will come your way through Jesus, that you, that you accept that. There's great comfort for us. Um, it is also helpful for us to, to think through what do we do if somebody goes apostate from our body? How do we treat them? Uh, Jordan was telling me that uh, in, he, he, he dialogues with um, Muslim students or Muslim people sometimes. And in Islam, apparently, if you go apostate, that's punishable by death. So that's a question that he gets. He's like, do you guys kill your apostates? And he's like, not, not, not a lot. Uh, no. Uh, why, why not? Why don't we do that? Well, one, Jesus, um, does, Jesus claims his own vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's, it's, it's Jesus's job. He can stand up for himself. Um, any Christians who ever do any kind of violence are, are totally stealing that from Jesus. Jesus has enough violence to deal with his enemies on his own. So that frees us to simply love the apostate. Love, tough love, but to love them and to pray for them and to seek that they would eventually return and, and genuinely, this time, lay that foundation, not to be torn up again because God won't let them because it's genuine. That's, that's our response to that is to, is to love them and to pray for them. Uh, and I want to I wanna just pray together. If you guys want to stand with me, get the blood moving in your brains. I just want to pray together over these things because these are weighty things. It's not a, fun, not a fun time, this passage. So let me pray. Papa God, you, you are beyond us um, in every conceivable way. Um, your knowledge is unsearchable. We cannot index it and, and search it. It is unsearchable. Um, you are other. You are holy. You are alien to us. And yet you reach down into us and are intimate with us. And by the grace of purchased uh, by Jesus that we, we can know you and that we can have your spirit dwell within us um, in an unprecedented way. 
in history until Jesus. Um, so thank you, Lord, uh, for this and for the security of our salvation. Uh, that we don't have to fear uh, getting hit by a bus after, after uh, a moment of unrepentant sin. Uh, that, that, our, that our salvation is secure in the finished work of Jesus. It's his record, his righteousness that, that gains us entrance into your presence. And so we thank you for that. Help us cling to that. That we would not listen to the lies of the enemy who would whisper otherwise that Jesus is finished with us or does not love us or that we've blown it. Uh, but that we can't, um, we can't leave your family. We can't be unadopted once we're truly in. Lord, I, I, I pray now, even those for those in this room and certainly all throughout this city um, who, who don't know you and who have not made you, uh, Jesus, their savior, king, and treasure, uh, that they would stop resisting, um, that your grace would be effectual, uh, that those whom you have chosen before uh, time even began, that you would make them yours, that they would hear your voice and they would say, yes, uh, that's me. I am supposed to follow I ask that you would do this and help us to be graceful with those who are struggling. Uh, help us to be loving towards those who walk away, um, to give us wisdom uh, for these difficult things. Um, I pray for the pastors in our church, of which there are many, uh, that you would in particular give them wisdom in this time. This season is, is always hard. Um, that they would have wisdom as they seek to love the city and love those who come through our doors and some who leave again. Um, to pursue them in love and uh, yeah, just for wisdom and spirit that you would, you would make Jesus glorious in this city, that he would not be held up to contempt uh, by people who, who claim him and then just don't believe anything that he teaches and refuse his authority. That Jesus, your authority would come over this city, not in a, not in a um, state and church kind of way, but in a graceful, loving, life-giving way uh, that many would be freed and that this would be done for your glory and your name. Amen.